0: You're listening to an episode of the C-19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States and the long 19th century. We are an official production of C-19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer, the opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individuals employers, nor the official opinions of C-19.
1: The Fisher Library at the University of Toronto has a miriarama made in London in 1824 in its holdings. A miriarama is a set of cards with different views, usually landscapes, that can be arranged in different orders to create varying scenes. When taken from their box and laid out side by side, the hand-colored aquatint panels of this miriarama create a panoramic, picturesque landscape that can shift and change. But it is a landscape that is always structured by particular romantic ideals of natural beauty. There are green hills. There are trees whose branches drape just so. The order of these pieces can change. The fundamental components remain stable. These objects were popular in the 1820s. They were used as early 19th century entertainment, expensive parlor amusements that, like later stereoscopes, could bring visions of the outside world into the home. They were also used as practice scenes for drawing and painting. Rather than bringing their supplies outdoors, aspiring artists could practice their skills, wherever they were, by replicating the scenes created by arranging and rearranging these cards. Simultaneously game and practical object, this miriarama enacts a relationship to landscape that unites play and aesthetic replication. I'm Melissa Neidick, Assistant Professor of English at the University of Toronto, and in the fall of 2019, I visited the Fisher Library with Zain Yao, lecturer in English at University College London, and a small group of graduate students from both University College London and the University of Toronto. We did not go to the library that day intending to look at this muriorama. We were engaged in activities related to a grant project about comparative settler colonialisms in global contexts. We had collectively read and discussed contemporary scholarship about Asian and Indigenous representation and racialization in the Americas, and had come to the archive to see if we might bring those theorizations to bear on archival material. But as so often happens during a short trip to an archive, we ended up ranging widely, looking at the journals of fur traders in Western Canada, books about global travel in the 19th century, and the late 20th century records of the National Association of Japanese Canadians Task Force of First Nations Canadians, as we considered various histories of settler colonialism. The archivist who was helping us brought out lavishly illustrated 19th century books about South America, and then the Miriorama. We were captivated by this object, simple in concept, yet delicately designed and executed. And as we moved its cards around, creating different panoramic scenes, the object unexpectedly became part of our thinking about mechanisms of settler colonialism. Its sweeping vision, European landscape conventions, and potential use as an instructive tool for replicating such conventions in amateur, genteel, artistic pursuits, came to suggest a type of relationship to landscape across geographies that we had, in fact, been considering in our theoretical readings. We begin this two-part podcast diptych about aspects of settler colonial studies and indigeneity in relation to the long C-19 with this piece of 19th century visual culture, this object lesson, both to celebrate the serendipity of archival experiences and to offer a visual analog for this episode's focus on studying settler colonialism across landscapes, geographies, and oceans. In this episode, Zainiau and I will first speak with Anishinaabe artist Maria Hupfield about her own artistic practice as it moves across borders. We'll then talk to David Stirrup about the recently launched Centre for Indigenous and Settler Colonial Studies at the University of Kent. This is the first centre of its kind in the UK, and we'll talk to David about what it means to cultivate scholarly conversations about indigeneity and settler colonialism in the UK at this moment in time. But first, Maria Hupfield. Welcome, Maria. Maria is currently Assistant Professor of Indigenous Digital Arts and Performance and a Canadian Research Chair in Transdisciplinary Indigenous Arts at the University of Toronto. And her work has shown across North America. And I'll let her tell us a little bit more about herself and her work.
0: Hi, Melissa. It's great to be here. Yeah, so I'm a An artist, I I make objects out of industrial felt, and then I activate them in live performance. I often also will use these objects in videos, so they reappear multiple times, and each time they're in a new context. And in this way, you could imagine that a story evolves around each object over time.
1: Great. And I wondered if you could just talk to us a little bit about how thinking and working and showing your work across the borders of nation states is central to your practice. Maybe talk about some of the different places you've shared your work and and how you think about kind of crossing national borders as central to your practice and maybe how it contributes to conversations about decolonization.
0: Yeah, that's a really good question, primarily because I've just returned back to Canada in the past two years. And before that, I was living in Brooklyn, New York, which, you know, I had ideas of what I thought the US was like, because I watched TV. But the reality is that it really is a whole different country. And when I moved there, Obama was still the president. And Mm -hmm. I really excited to be a part of that so to see the change has been incredible and the shifts and conversations so as an artist I'm often moving across these nation state borders, but as an Indigenous person, the U.S. and Canada is especially contentious. So when I lived there, it was through the J Treaty, which is one of the few treaties that the U.S. honors, which allows if you're Indigenous, it allows you to work in the U.S. as a permanent resident can prove that you're 50% um, Native. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's a pretty uh, lengthy process getting all that paperwork in place. But um, yeah, so, you know, we we acknowledge that there's this history of Indigenous people that we have family and kin on both sides of the border. Mm -hmm. And acknowledge this migration route that we've crossed over that border, you know, long before the founding of Canada and the independence of the US. Yeah, so I've often gone on both sides of the border. And as an artist living in New York, having these opportunities to show my work to a broader audience is something that often comes up. So in terms of thinking about decolonization, I suppose that fits right within that, the idea that, mm-hmm. that there's this colonial history, right? And wanting to give space for, as Indigenous people, that we had migration routes, that we followed seasons, that we, and today, that we can continue to do that as people. You know, you see that with the snowbirds going down from Canada <laughs> to Arizona. Yeah, that we can move with the seasons and respond to that. So I think that's, I don't know if you'd think of the um, snowbirds as a form of decolonization. <laughs> but um, there's a sense that we can move freely and have mobility.
2: Mm hmm. And so our next question, I think, picks up really nicely from what you just laid out for us, which is, how do you think about bringing work that might be locally grounded to different geographies, I guess, your own flights, as it were, across these different spaces, and what those specificities do to your work? Uh, Why is it important? And do you find that your work then ends up shifting in different spaces?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question as well. I mean, because I've had the advantage of having a few exhibitions that were touring. So they went to different museum spaces nationally across Canada to Paris. That every time the exhibition would move, it would be recontextualized, right? Mm-hmm. So for an exhibition I did with a power plant called The One Who Keeps On Giving, as it moved with each iteration, I would do a live performance in the gallery and each performance was a collaborative effort. So I would invite local performance artists to work with me. And, you know, there's no better way to learn about a place than mm. for- artists who live there, right? So it was a chance Uh for me to really get a sense of the audience to get a sense of what was happening conversations people were having, and just put myself in different settings. And in that way, even the items in the exhibition that my creations would ideally speak to people in that setting in another kind of way as well. So that was one method that I've used through live performance and collaboration. But the other thing that happens is, you know, when I had a, a show at The Herd, the exhibition was called Nine Years Towards the Sun, and it just recently came down. So a lot of the objects for that were items that I had created when I lived in Brooklyn, and so things like a large industrial felt canoe for me at the time, or a snowsuit while I lived in mm. Brooklyn where there wasn't snow, you had a different kind of feeling. And then you know when I see those items show in Canada, it's just like oh, it's like suddenly <laughs> people get what it is. <laughs> and they're like oh, those are Sorel boots, right? show those in a place where there's a desert climate like Phoenix, Arizona, then suddenly, again, there's this kind of absurdity where it's like, yeah, these are not the boots to wear in the desert. Mm-hmm. You know, Things really stick to them. And, you know, so there's a, a real possibility that happens when you shift context that allows for a reimagining. And I just like the idea that in my work, you know, I do a lot of work around story work and thinking about my work as story work where a shifting context context can really change the meaning. So even if we see the same, if we all hear the same story, we're still different people. So our takeaway is going to mm-hmm. be different. We're going to mm-hmm. relate to it in a different way. And I just really love this idea of oral tradition and storytelling and what's possible in that narrative, in the telling of the story.
1: Mm-hmm. Can I just ask one quick follow-up question? You mentioned Paris, right? A show kind of touring to Paris. And I'm just curious about the difference between showing work in a North American space and European space in particular. Do questions of indigeneity kind of read differently in North America than in
0: Paris? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So one of the things I really loved about doing a project, um, so I did a project in Venice, which was where I made this felt canoe, right, or a on, or it was in the style of a traditional birch bark canoe. Was that I was going to a place where I had never been, mm. and I was thinking about you know boat cultures being mm. in the terms of being in Brooklyn. And I'm like, well, I can make any kind of boat, but in the end, I decided well, a birch bark canoe was the type to make because it spoke to this history. And I had a conversation with a, a woman, Sylvia Plain, who had revitalized birch bark Canoe Building. And she said, Maria, imagine how you'll feel carrying a Birchbark-style canoe in Venice. Yeah, yes. Amazing, and, you know, wow. So I, I had all the pieces and then I assembled it. I carried it over and then I assembled it once I was there. And I carried it around on my back and I had all these different actions that I did with it. And it was a way to think about you know this history that I'm carrying Caring in this new place. Mm. But also to think about, you know, in Venice, the way to experience that place is on the water, on a boat. And so it was, um, you know, something for me to think about being from a boat culture and connecting with another boat culture. Mm-hmm. And in this way that, you know, you're coming to it shoulder to shoulder, there isn't this hierarchy. And I love the idea of just being someplace where like when I had my show in Paris, there's a young woman from my community who actually was going to school in Paris to study Mm -hmm. at this international business school and her mom was there and we were looking at each other and we're like, yeah, this is how it's meant to be. Mm -hmm. Of course, we meet in Paris, you know, Mm -hmm. and people have always traveled and what's to prevent us from having sophisticated international discourses. And it really is Mm -hmm. that colonial history that locks us into this past where it's fixed to a certain moment in time and we're never really given that freedom to imagine being in the world and to have a future and to have mobility and to really, you know, the freedom to express ourselves and to dream and to think of all the imaginings that are possible. I just, I have to say, I I love, I love that story. Thank you. Um, I'm still thinking about both in Venice. Me too. You know, ideally the way to go to a place, like a lot of the projects I've done, I feel like I'm planting seeds. Like mm. I go somewhere mm. and then ideally it's a connection and then hopefully there's a return and I can go back and see that plant grow or to see those ideas grow and and reconnect. You know, like any relationship over time it gets richer and deeper. And rather being just a tourist, eventually over time you can kind of know a place a little more and have a little more insight.
2: What do you see as particular challenges or opportunities at this moment in time for Indigenous art in general or for education within Indigenous studies?
0: Wow, there's so much, you know, I think the conversation has really shifted especially being back in Canada now to see how much more visible and present Indigenous people are and how even with the term BIPOC that, you know, we're in there, we're in there, you know, we're the Indigenous in there. For me, the things that I'm thinking about are really the way that a term like Indigenous becomes so it lumps everyone together. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking a lot about specificity and the richness that comes out of different lived experience, that there isn't one lived experience, but that there's multiple. And the, the benefit that we can have from knowing that. So we, we see that today with things like territorial acknowledgements, the way that depending where you are, there's such a, a rich history and conversation that we can really be a part of and see ourselves as a part of, you know, whether that's Anishinaabe or depending where you are, or the Tuk, you know, wherever you are living, For myself, being back here in Toronto, I'm just aware of that, you know, I went to school at UTM at the University of Toronto in Mississauga. I'm an alumni of the Art and Art History Program. So I really feel a connection to this place and also being Anishinaabe that I'm grounded back in my territory. And with that, there's all this work to do around being an artist that I'm bringing with me when I return. But at the same time, a lot of other work and commitments I have to do in um, responsibilities to my community that I also have to um, pick up that come with that as well you know in the role at the university as well as an artist and and in my community.
1: Thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us today. We'll now move from Toronto, Brooklyn, and Venice to the University of Kent, as Zain and I speak with David Stirrup about academic initiatives involving Indigenous and settler colonial studies in the UK.
2: We're very excited to have Professor David Stirrup with us here today from the University of Kent with the very first Centre for Indigenous and Settler Colonial Studies in the United Kingdom. Thanks for joining us today, David.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: So we'll get right into your questions. First of all, can you tell us a bit about the impetus for the founding of this new center for Indigenous and settler colonial studies? How did it come about, and what are its
3: goals? Thank you for those questions. Yeah, I, I want to sound facetious and say loneliness, but having worked in, um, I mean, largely Native American literature and and visual art in the UK since my PhD, there are very few people in this country who are, who have been actively working in this area. So. It's often felt quite, quite isolated and, and quite fragmentary. And most of my conversations have tended to be slightly at cross purposes with people in American studies, Canadian studies and postcolonial studies. And then I think I, I kind of noticed a little bit of a, a shift. I can't pinpoint point it exactly, but just a, a growing number of expressions of interest in indigenous topics from uh, graduate students, for instance, a, a growing level of base knowledge among undergraduate students, which was quite unusual, and then a general increase in awareness about indigenous issues um, from um, among colleagues, particularly colleagues who are interested in things like arts and activism. So, I think the, the kind of the visibility of moments like Idle No More in Canada and various protests against. Oil pipelines in the states kind of brought colleagues who who hadn't necessarily really been thinking about these things to start thinking about them. So really, it was that sense that actually maybe there was a growing opportunity for a better kind of conversation. So our goals are various, um, some more ambitious than others, but first and foremost, the the main goal was really to to form a space, a kind of intellectual space in in this institution that would enable uh, facilitate those kinds of conversations. And then to to also use that space to think about providing a kind of more regular platform, I think, for Indigenous speakers, both scholars and community members in the UK, to to kind of try to create a home, if you like, that would enable us to make invitations to Indigenous speakers, both a more regular thing and something that, that could generate greater levels of publicity than we've perhaps managed in the past. And then to think about the kinds of ethical questions that are so central to both indigenous studies and settler colonial studies in relation to our own research and teaching practices and in relation to the uk higher education system more broadly and and then to bring all of that together to kind of find ways of helping graduate students as they enter into these kinds of conversations to um how can I put it to make better choices than we did as graduate students to kind of do, to, to be more immediately locked into the kinds of conversations that are actually and actively being led by indigenous scholars and then you know there's a whole host of other things that come out from that resource creation and, and all sorts of other grand ambitions but but that, that's the kind of central premise of it.
1: Thanks. I think this next question that we wanted to ask you kind of builds nicely on what you just said. But we wondered what you see as the possibilities and challenges facing Indigenous and settler colonial studies at this particular moment in time.
3: It it is a really good question. I mean, I think to speak really broadly about challenges, I guess the first and foremost has to be institutional funding and institutional support. Mm -hmm. I think really at the end of the day, although Indigenous studies is a a far more common thing in various settler nations, it's still relatively precarious. And that that I think is probably the most immediate challenge is to continue to fight against that precarity. And I think that also goes hand in hand with making the UK less hostile to Indigenous scholars and students, you know, figuring out how to support Indigenous scholarship in the UK, figuring out how to bring Indigenous scholars more consistently and for longer periods of time to the UK, whether as grad students or postdoctoral students, postdoctoral scholars is key. And then I think developing ethical praxis that goes beyond Indigenous studies. And then I think there's still a lot of work to be done just figuring out what the role of, in, of non-Indigenous scholars is, mm-hmm. in, particularly in Indigenous studies slightly different in in settler colonial studies and perhaps that tension between indigenous studies and settler colonial studies is another one of the challenges. But yeah, I mean, in terms of possibilities, there's a lot of interesting work still going on in terms of uh, global networks of indigenous studies. I think another of the possibilities, the sort of thing that I get particularly excited about is developing praxis that centres forms of activist scholarship. Um, And then it's possibly a challenge as well as a possibility, but actively confronting the realities of British and other European colonial histories, mm-hmm. uh, whether that be in schools or in more broadly public arenas. But I'm sure you're very familiar with just how little British students tend to understand about our own colonial history, particularly when it comes to the Americas.
2: Definitely. And I think
3: that's something that just has to change. And, you know, I think Indigenous studies, settler colonial studies play can potentially play a very big part in changing that, that narrative.
2: So I think this follows on very directly to what you just said, and and indeed, I think maybe you've already answered part of this, but what does it mean to consider and settler colonialism in this space in the UK? And what does it mean for conversations around decolonization? Because it always strikes me that decolonization is a phrase we hear over and over again. And yet from indigenous studies, we think of, of course, Tuck and Yang's iconic essay now, decolonization Mm. is not a metaphor. And this has been an essay that I've been actively showing people here because decolonization is the word that so many people turn to for certain type of activist work within the academy
3: yeah yeah <laughs> so i think thinking about indigeneity and settler sort of colonialism in this space does does mean actively and consistently confronting that and trying to change that kind of narrative of, of erasure that repeatedly allows britain to avoid its responsibilities to the past but I think it means more positive things too. So it, it's also about asking what we can do to facilitate Indigenous scholars and scholarship, Indigenous policymakers, Indigenous activists, and so on, who are maybe working in ex-British colonies, but who may want to draw on the very considerable archives that exist in this country, mm. but that you know aren't necessarily always accessible. So I think we have a facilitative role, and I think that is one of the things that, in thinking about Indigenous and settler colonial studies in the UK, has to focus on. How can we centre Indigenous voices in the conversations about Indigenous issues that occur in this country. And then also, you know, Indigenous studies itself depends in so many ways on proximity to community, right, that it's a practice that is, Mm. in its best iterations, is community driven. So what does that mean when you're working in Canterbury? What does that mean when you're working in London? How do we form a scholarly practice that is responsive to community needs, that, that actively works with communities, even from the kinds of distances that we're working from? And then how how we can think about how Indigenous studies research methodologies in particular can be deployed in other areas of research. So thinking about how those questions of responsibility and reciprocity that are so central to Indigenous studies might have purchase in other areas of study, That whether, whether they be working with community or working with sensitive subjects. I think there's an awful lot to learn from Indigenous studies methodologies, even for scholars who aren't working with Indigenous issues the question of decolonisation not being a metaphor is is so kind of key to this. When we think about decolonisation in settler colonial states, we're immediately thinking about things like land back. What does that mean in the UK? Well, I think it means enabling people through knowledge to apply pressure to those kinds of principles of decolonisation in settler states. So when matters are put to the UN, for instance, I think a lot about the ways in which the British obstructed and in some ways continue to obstruct things like the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. They can do that partly because they know there's never going to be any pressure from people in the UK Mm -hmm. to uh, differently about Britain's position in relation to its ex-colonies. So I I think information and knowledge sharing is going to be at the heart of the decolonisation conversation in the UK uh, where, where Indigenous studies is concerned. I think it forces us to think about treaty relationships. Again, there's very little knowledge in this country of the complexity of our relationships to Indigenous communities historically. And, you know, treaties are one embodiment of that complexity. And and we might, I think, want to collectively think about what the implications of treaties are for us now, particularly those that are signed, you know, that are drawn up in the name of the crown, albeit a Canadian crown. But mm. those connections are, are real and palpable, and they still have impact uh, on Indigenous studies. And, and it's not really right that the British public is largely ignorant of those relationships. There are an awful lot more ways in which we could be thinking about decolonisation. I mean, particularly, if we start to think about what decolonisation meant practically and politically earlier in the 20th century, Mm -hmm. when quite literally returning autonomy to ex-colonial states and returning, returning land, returning other kinds of goods, thinking about what's sitting in our museums, for instance, what kind of documentation is sitting in archives that really ought to be returned in one form or another to source communities, all, all those kinds of things are practical, tangible aspects of decolonization.
1: So you've spoken about the need for global networks of Indigenous studies as, as one way forward. But could you talk a little bit about the center's plans for the future, whether, you know, really kind of practical on the ground or kind of broader visions for those global conversations?
3: So, so two things that we'd already planned to, to start doing very locally for students and, and other researchers at Kent was uh, a literature reading group, uh, Indigenous literature reading group and an an Indigenous research methods reading group. And both of those have obviously been running on zoom and both of those have been significantly bigger (laughs) than we otherwise expected and particularly the indigenous research methods group it's been abundantly clear how many people there are out there who were really wanting to have those kinds of conversations and we're a number of people who've joined us from the states and canada wanting to be part of those conversations and not finding easy access to those conversations in their own institutions and entirely understandably not wanting to make demands of already hard-worked indigenous colleagues to provide those sorts of mm-hmm. conversations, So that's been really interesting and we're not quite sure what we're going to do when, when we no longer need to use Zoom, if there's still that level of, of international interest in being part of those conversations. But we'll be doing more of that. The other thing that has been launched just in the last couple of months is uh, the result of a collaboration with the UK branch of a Swiss NGO called Incomindios. We've partnered up with them to launch the Incomindios Lipuna Scholarship, which is basically a one-off stipend to an Indigenous student working on any any area of indigenous rights to contribute to costs of their education so that is something that we're really excited about We have our first incomendios lapuna scholar speaking on December the 10th to the center and uh, we're looking forward to seeing how that relationship with Incomendios UK develops. And then the other thing that we're doing very actively at the moment is we're, we have a number of nascent projects, various members of the, the centre involved in with cultural institutions in the UK who are themselves already wanting to develop greater accessibility and better working practices with Indigenous communities. So we're working hard to, at this point in time, to raise the funds to pursue some of those projects. But then once the funds are raised to develop good models for community engagement between institutions and source communities of their collections. And yeah, I think I think those are the kinds of key things that we're focusing on at the moment with the ultimate aim of working with indigenous scholars to develop indigenous centered research practices that can be relatively straightforwardly taken up by students in the UK that will then build on those kinds of connections between institutions and communities. So that last sounds a bit vague, as I say it, but (laughs) if I give you a couple of examples, we have one student who is looking at the possibility of doing some language training for instance and if that goes ahead then the expertise in that particular case is very obviously uh, centered in universities in the states and I have another student who is working on activist oriented forms of scholarship and uh, who is develop- developing some really interesting relationships with indigenous activists in Canada so yeah those are the kinds of things that we're we're trying to use the center to just put some institutional shape to to make it easier for students to develop the the tools and the practices that will make for better scholarship in this area
1: mm. oh thank you that gives us a good sense of the both the local kind of really on the ground practical things happening but in support of these broader global conversations that are as you say also ne- necessarily always rooted in the local
3: i think i think the other thing that's that's just really important for us is that we are all actively committed to collaboration i right? I think ultimately that's, that's one of the things that, that has to drive the field in the UK, that it has to be a collaborative endeavour. There are, there are far too few of us mm-hmm. working in this mm-hmm. country on Indigenous and settler issues to carry on working in isolation. I, I mean, as I said right at the very start, it, it feels like things are shifting slightly British funders are funding indigenous focused projects in a way that they never have before and there is definitely there's more interest and there's more awareness amongst all levels of the student body than there ever was before I find you know when I when I first started teaching Native American literature at Kent I couldn't get over just how little my students knew about the kinds of things that, even things that one might have taken for granted like the stereotypes and uh, and that's definitely changed there are a whole host of reasons for that It's crucial, actually, that institutions do recognise that this is an area that really demands backing, Mm -hmm. um, that there's important work to do. And, and, you know, maybe the fact that the decolonisation conversation is so live helps that because it's supporting these kinds of events is a way in which institutions can make visible their larger support for decolonisation conversations. I don't know. I keep saying to people it feels like a, a moment of change, and I really hope it is a moment of change.
2: Well, thank you so much again, David. I think that you're the perfect person for us to be interviewing in terms of thinking really deeply about Mm -hmm. what we can do for Indigenous studies, Indigenous scholars and artists from our position here and the unacknowledged center of empire in many ways.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode about transnational, transatlantic, artistic, and scholarly work involving indigenous and settler colonial studies. For more information about the University of Kent Center for Indigenous and Settler Colonial Studies, or Maria Hupfield's work, take a look at the links in the episode notes. Our thanks to David Stirrup and Maria Hupfield for speaking with us and to the University College London University of Toronto joint research projects and exchange activities grant for the funding that made this work possible. Thanks also to Rachel Bossio and the C19 podcast team, and to Chelsea Latremoy and Stephanie Redekop for production assistance with this episode. In our second episode about indigeneity and settler colonialism in global contexts, Zain will speak with TJ Talley about 19th century settler colonial histories in a region of what is now South Africa, and ways to consider relationships between indigeneity and blackness. We hope you'll listen to that episode and all the other C19 podcasts episodes
0: thank you for listening to the c19 podcast enjoyed this episode have thoughts use the hashtag c19 podcast or get in touch with us at c19 podcast
3: at gmail.com have an idea for an episode check out our cfp on the c19 website for more details on submitting a proposal